You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Welcome to the world of Tony Ho from CBC Podcasts. It's an award-winning, bite-sized narrative comedy series about human relationships, familiar, hilarious, and sometimes unnerving. The troupe features Miguel Rivas, Adam Niebergall, and alumnus of the Second City Mainstage, Roger Bainbridge. They will take you on a darkly comedic ride that finds honesty in every situation. You can listen and subscribe to Tony Ho on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I love this conversation. Eliza Van Court. She's a consultant, a speaker, a writer on communication, career and workplace issues, and women's empowerment. She's the founder of the Actors Workshop of Ithaca. She's a cookhouse fellow at Cornell University and an advisory board member for the Performing Arts for Social Change. She's got a great book. It's called A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space. Stand tall, raise your voice, be heard. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DS Hand. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Eliza Van Court, welcome to the show. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited. We were talking before, and uh, you have a good publicist because uh, mm-hmm. I was not booking any new guests. And that <laughs> publicist said, No, you're booking Eliza. And I said, Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica. I love you. <laughs> yes, she's great. So the opening sentence of your new book is this quote, For years I was afraid to be my own hero, end quote. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, I had a lot of trauma when I was little, and I spent a lot of time hiding behind a curtain of hair, and I, because of what happened to me, and I can go into it if you want or not, but because of what happened, I started conflating invisibility with safety, and it took me a long time to unpack that and to start realizing that being invisible isn't safe at all. It's quite, it's quite dangerous. So that was... And it, and it was a lifetime struggle. And then, of course, you add on to that the message little girls get all the time from the time we're little. Be little, good, quiet girls. And, and it's a recipe for um, being afraid to be your own hero. If you're comfortable talking about it, I'd love, I'd love for us to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're going to dive right in here. Uh, my mother was a wonderful mom, by all accounts, until I was about four and a half. And then she became paranoid schizophrenic. Mm. And she ended up taking me three times illegally. And there was a national APB out on me. 
And we went once from New York to Texas and twice from New York to California, once by truck hitchhiking. And what happened on that trip, as a mother, I think about it now. And if it had happened to my children, I just don't. Yeah. So it was so traumatizing. And when I got out of it, I was a little girl who was afraid of the world. And one of my heroes, my big sister Alice in the Big Sister Big Brother program, told me about how she just sat with me for weeks and colored because I was afraid to leave my house. And when I finally did, I hid behind her leg for months. Yeah. I mean, that's a theme in the book, too, because you also suffered an accident. um, Right. A car accident. Um, Tell us about that. And then I want to tell you my observation based on reading that story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I was riding my bike, don't text and drive kids, and somebody decided it was a better idea to text and drive than just drive, and they hit me in the head with their car. Mm. <laughs> I was wearing a helmet, and um, I, I got thrown on the hood of their car, got knocked unconscious, got thrown into the middle of an intersection, hit the other side of my head, woke up with a bilateral brain injury and a subdural hematoma, and I thought I was okay. And then I said to my my friend Kim one day, you know, Kim, why is everyone acting so strangely? Because I feel like the only thing that's like really different now is that I used to hate raw tomatoes. Now I love them. And she said, no, no, Eliza, they're not acting strangely. You are. You're acting strangely. You are talking with a third grade vocabulary. I don't know. I don't even remember everything she said. But one of my friends described it as a stoned third grader. And uh, and I thought, oh, God, you know, my life has been about how I communicate. And now I don't even, I'm so disabled that I don't even know I'm not communicating well. So I had to build my communication back brick by brick. And that process, which was pretty arduous, yeah. <laughs> um, was how this book was born in many ways. There are other reasons why I was born, like conversations in the bathroom, but this was the this was one of the big, big things that started the, the bones of the book. What was interesting to me about that was a couple of things. Uh, the podcast that uh, uh, we that aired um, Tuesday uh, was with Chad Sanders, who has a book called Black Magic, but it's about how uh, uh, black leaders have used their trauma uh, to navigate life and work successfully, uh, which is a sort of interesting take. And then I know in terms of the, the traumas that have happened to me, my, my friend Scott Barry Kaufman, who we've had on the podcast a couple of times, uh, refers to them in, in a scientific term, which is post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I think happened to you. I think that, mm-hmm. that what, what appears to happen is that you used that opportunity not as a way for it to defeat you, but to further clarify and refine this mission of growing and, and, and what the book's about, which is about claiming space. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think for me, you know, a lot of people hear my story and they think, they say, oh, you're such an exceptional woman. You're so wonderful. You, you're so strong. And I, I don't really, I, I mean, I think I have a little bit of my mother's oppositional nature, but I, I think a lot of it is really, I, ha- I was very fortunate to have a really incredible community. And mm-hmm. that's where sort of, sort of some of my passion around the idea of community comes from and connection is that nobody does this alone. I mean, anytime you hear someone say, I did it by myself, I always want to say, oh, really? You had no teacher who invested in you? You didn't have money? You didn't have one person, one coach? Really? Because there's always one. And I think, you know, to me, as we go through our lives, we can think, you know, we can be that one. And that's kind of one of my motivators. Yeah. So let's talk about this idea around claiming physical space. Um, In the book, you say, quote, people treat you the way they perceive you, end quote. 
Mm-hmm. So that's that's different advice than many than many books give. Uh, yes. and, and so, yeah, go, go through that a bit for us. Well, what I noticed is that a lot of times when I have students, you know, I, I teach acting, I have an interdisciplinary background, political science and acting. And uh, I will see a student go up there and do a physical adjustment. And suddenly everybody in the exercise is treating them differently because of how they're moving in space. And what I thought about when I was recovering was, yeah, you know what? A lot of the women who I talk to, I say, are you confident? They say, oh, no, I'm not confident. I just go out there and I do the thing and then I get confidence because of what happens. <laughs> and I really do believe that sometimes if you, pr- you do not need to say, oh, I feel so small. So therefore I'd be lying if I, if I don't project that I'm small. No, if you're feeling insecure and small, there's no reason you don't have to project confidence because you will, re- you will be received better because of that. And I really believe that there is an element, about a fifth of it, about a fifth of claiming space that is fake it till you make it. There, and and there's science you know? to back that up. There is literal yeah. science to back that up. Yeah, absolutely. And I see it every day with my students. I experienced it myself. Uh, I have a stammer now that happens sometimes because of my accident. If I spent a lot of time apologizing and shrinking because of it, I would be apologizing and shrinking every time I did a podcast. I, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> So the book also has a lot of really helpful, specific sort of exercises and, and, and that you can do. And one of them, I, I actually, my trainer added mm-hmm. to me because I, I always had great uh, lower body strength and no upper body. I was a soccer player um, right. and, I, and I slouched. Uh, and right. so she had me square my shoulders and I sort of go, go up like that. Yes. It has changed so much of my, the way I carry myself and how I feel about myself. Yes. And, and these things, this mind-body stuff, it's absolutely 100% connected. Absolutely. And so much of the time I've had mentees in my acting class where they say, you know, I'm feeling insecure. And I said, just for a day, let's, let's create a character that has their shoulders thrown back and, you know, who's speaking with more confidence and just see what happens. And invariably, they come back to me and they say, oh, my God, I, I can't believe how differently people treated me. And then I started feeling good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, that's what happens. Uh, so you go from physical space to voice. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the most loaded areas of communication when you're talking yes. about men and women. Um, that is that again is a very fraught uh, uh, place to live because it's like I don't know. Men still in the workplace will be like oh, some matter of voices, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean the voice is huge. And there are so many misconceptions about our voice. And I think one of the biggest ones actually is that you got to be loud. You know, if you want to get attention, you got to be loud. And I see over and over and over again, people coaching people to do this, you know, stand your ground, make sure you're going full voice. And I really find that, yes, that's important. It's important to have a good, strong baseline. But, you know, when you get quiet, people listen. And it's because as human beings, we build intimacy by telling secrets. And so it makes people feel like you're talking just to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very powerful. Um, my wife often makes fun of me because uh, I eat so fast, but I'm the youngest of six boys. And there was a reason that I was eating so fast. Um, <laughs> she talks really fast. Interesting. And when I was reading the book, I'm like, I know why you talk fast. Because I'm, I'm married to a smart girl. I'm married to mm-hmm. a, a <laughs> recently tenured uh, professor of comedy um, who was always, at, she actually uh, had a very funny tweet that she put up last night, which was uh, looking for a self-help group for uh, girls who did well in grade school. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, so why is it hard for women to slow down in their in their speech? Well, I mean, they have found that women need to provide more evidence to be heard and believed. And yet we all have the same amount of time that is acceptable to talk. So if you have to provide more evidence in the same amount of time to talk, you got to cram a lot in there. So Mm -hmm. I always tell people to kind of break it up. So to say, you know, I think we should go with the color red for our campaign. And I have some research to back that up if you'd like to hear it, as opposed to we should go with the color red and here's why. And this is the research because it just disempowers you. Uh, So. Perhaps the opposite of that is silence. And we just interviewed a, a couple of guys, one from Berkeley uh, uh, School of Music and one from IDEO, who have a book called Two Beats Ahead. And the mm-hmm. very first chapter starts uh, basically with a rest, with silence, and sort of digging into the power of starting a... a and Beethoven's Fifth is this. It starts with a rest. And then it mm-hmm. all comes in. And that, mm-hmm. that you, there's no better expression of like, oh, that's how that's powerful. I can, I can you know, feel it. Yes. Yes. Oh, silence is a tough one because women get interrupted more. So what do you do? You fill the space with ah, uh, um, but you know, blah, 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 you know, uh, uh, uh. And it's not, you know, it's not necessary. Silence is powerful. And some of the moments where I have really shut people down is by using silence. My favorite example is when someone tells a joke that is sexist and they're waiting for you to take care of them and to laugh. And just saying, just looking at them with a slight smile on your face and just saying nothing and letting that bomb drop is more powerful than anything you could do. (laughs) Uh, We often say in my industry, which is comedy industry, that a groan is as good as a laugh. Uh, What is not good is crickets. It's silence. Crickets is the worst. So give them crickets. (laughs) Um, You also cite the work. Uh, of Deborah Grunfeld, who's a professor at Stanford, who yes. talks about high playing behaviors and low playing behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you take take us through that a little bit? Yeah, I love her work, and I've expanded on it because I just think it's so brilliant. So basically, high playing behaviors are really you take up a lot of space with your body. Holding your head still, if you ever are pissed off at your teenager, <laughs> hold your head still. You will be amazed at how they react to you. <laughs> um, and not, you know, keeping eye contact, except of course, if somebody's talking to you, you don't really need to look at them because you have better things to do. So, you know, that's high playing. Low playing would be your hands close to your face, kind of jerky, smiling all the time. She calls this, this is so creepy, the badge of appeasement. Um, and just really, you know, very closed off body language, the worst. I, and I never recommend anyone do this, toes pointing in. But I do want to give a caveat for this because people read it and they automatically think, well, I'm going to play high all the time. Playing high is a power move. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm going to be mentoring people with a huge power dynamic that is unequal, I am not going to high play them. I'm going to play low in order to raise them up or else they're going to think, why is this woman power playing me? I'm out. So I was thinking about this in the context of uh, our, our work uh, in improvisation and status. So mm-hmm. there's like three major schools of improvisation. Augustus mm-hmm. Bawal, who's Theater of the Oppressed. Viola Spolin, mm-hmm. which is Second City, which is very uh, behavior-based. And then Keith Johnstone, uh, who is a, a British-born, uh, now Canadian. Uh, he, and he tries to bring it to playwriting. And I found a quote that he said about uh, status, because that's a big thing he talks about. He says, quote, you can say that the status has something to do with the self-esteem of a character in a scene. Status is something you have, but also something you do, something mm-hmm. you pretend and play. Understand mm-hmm. status is something you do regardless of your social status. That's and I right. think that's very connected to what you were talking about in, in your Absolutely. work. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see it. I mean, you see people do these behaviors and they're being very specific about it. And, you know, I, I will say, if you look at our governor, my governor, Governor Cuomo, mm -hmm. his high playing behaviors when he's talking to a reporter. <laughs> I mean, no one's very happy with him right now. But I think actually part of that is that sometimes he plays high when he shouldn't. Yes. And he sure. makes people feel small. Yeah. Uh, and so you can you but I think being aware of these body mechanics so much of this is not that you're I'm saying something new it's that most of the time we do this in an automatized way if we're not an actor we don't think about it learning to be cognizant of this stuff that's what empowers you to show up the way you want to show up yeah well this and this is I think you know our, our mutual work is all about this it's that waking up one day and recognizing that oh what theater what theater was created to show us uh, a different uh, uh, make us understand how the world works how, how yes. people are what our shared stories are all these things and and they're like oh that is that that, that the, the powerful application of that in people's every day um and their every day is eight or nine hours at work and the rest of that time at home um mm -hmm. and you, we've talked many times on this podcast that the idea of work-life balance is bullshit um, some people have introduced work-life sway, which is a thing I kind of love, <laughs> yep. this idea that we sway in and out at different times. Mm -hmm. But we are actors in a variety of productions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I always also tell people, we're on stage all day. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here with you, I have on bright red lipstick and some really cool earrings and black turtleneck. I will. I was wearing a sweatshirt before this, and I didn't have on bright red lipstick. I don't walk around my house like this. But, you know, we're all doing a certain amount of costume wearing all day and, present, and presenting all day. And the thing is, you know, as long as it's coming from a part of your authentic self, that's fine. And we should. Because, you know, if I had my way, I'd show up to a talk in slippers, but I'm not going to do that. We're all, yeah, we're all playing all the time. Uh, Francesca Gina, who's a professor at Harvard we had on the podcast, has an experiment where uh, she switched out of uh, heels to bright red sneakers. Um, mm. And the bright, she got rated more positively with the bright red sneakers. Oh, and that's fascinating. It's, a, it's really interesting in terms of, again, that's how, how you're showing up. And she's matching that with a very professional sort of suit. And, you know, so, um, all right. We talked about voice, which is fraught. Um, mm -hmm. Smiling, that's also... You, yes. you recommend smiling. Again, there's seas of evidence that, that, that people, you know, respond well to smiling, but that is also a real tough thing for women who get told to smile more. Well, I do a one-act play called Smile very often with my students where someone's saying, smile, smile, and eventually the woman punches the guy in the face. So, um, so I, I think that, here's the thing, if you're not happy, you don't need to smile. Uh, but I think that if you do smile and you're happy and you're connecting with someone, it makes them feel good. That said, there are times where you have to balance what level of pushback am I willing to take compared to my goal? So for example, if you're being interrupted, do you want to go full out and be like, yeah, I'm going to have a conversation about this interruption. I'm not going to smile. It's going to be all about, because as soon as you say, hey, you interrupted me, most people are going to say, why are you being so sensitive? And then you have to have a whole conversation about you know, the interruption and their response. If you just want the interruption to stop, you can do what our vice president did, which was smile, put her hand up and say, I'm speaking. 
with a smile on her face because she knew that if she did that without a smile, the reception from the press would be very different. And that was tactical. And sometimes I think it's okay to have a tactical smile because sometimes well, they it, keep you safe. And, and she's got the triple bind, right? Of, of uh, that, that this is even harder for a woman of color. Right. And I think a lot of times I hear white women talking about communication saying, you know, you should just do this thing. And, you know, a lot of women are going to look at that and say, that must be lovely for you to be able to do that thing. If I do that thing, it's going to be real different. Uh, When my wife is teaching about status, the example with women in particular, the examples she gives are are often um, Oprah Winfrey who, uh, when she was doing her, her previous show, a lot of times if she had certain kind of guests, she would lower herself, mm-hmm. like physically lower herself. Um, Tina Fey uh, does that. And this is a very powerful woman mm-hmm. in the industry, but she, mm-hmm. she, she's not going to uh, speak louder than Alec Baldwin. So she goes uh, underneath Alec Baldwin uh, mm-hmm. to, to do, do her work. You have a great story uh, about, I think you were in college <laughs> and you got to uh, see Maya Angelou speak, which, which is amazing. Uh, Can you yes. tell the story? Yeah, that, oh, one of my biggest regrets. So I grew up, you know, reading Maya Angelou, kind of saved my life. And in college, I was the head of the campus women's organization. They brought Maya Angelou in. And I was watching her, but I was too scared to go up to her. And I saw this young woman walk up to her. And she was looking at Maya Angelou, and she was playing very low, as well she should, because she is talking to a queen. And she was saying, I just, I, I just said, I, I love you, and you're so amazing, and oh my God. I know. And Maya Angelou leans over in her statuesque way and looks at her, and she says, kiss me right here and the woman looks at her on the cheek and kisses her cheek and steps back and my angelou says thank you and walks away and the young woman is just like uh completely stunned but you know my angelou went into her space interrupted her maintained direct eye contact in a very intimidating way but she also actually had a little bit of a smile on her face which softened it but she was acting very high but this young woman expected that of her because Maya Angelou is a queen and so when you see her you don't want Maya Angelou to play low you want her to be the queen you envision so a lot of that also is showing up the way that you are going to best impact people and I'm guessing Maya Angelou doesn't act exactly like that when she's with her best friends but when she's meeting a young girl it's going to be very different she's going to give her what she needs and she did she gave her exactly what she needed well, you talk about this in your work as being a mentor, and I think it relates also to the st- the um, information on mirroring. You're not going to mirror Maya Angelou. Right. <laughs> no. You and I might mirror each other in terms That's of right. social status or wh- where, where we are in a conversation. That would make perfect sense. So t- right. talk to our audience a little bit about uh, your work in mirroring and how you bring that to this conversation. Well, mirroring is something that the one thing that people do wrong is they mirror too fast whenever I start talking about mirroring. So, you know, I'll sit down with someone doing interview coaching or and they'll, the person across them who's playing the interviewer will move. And then the person who's playing the interviewee will move really fast. <laughs> and so what you don't, you want to subtly mirror the person in front of you. And they found that that really builds rapport. Um, but there are times you don't want to mirror. And one of those times is if you're in a group and there is a head person and this person is sitting there and they're sitting up straight and all the deputies are not sitting that way. Mm. You do not mirror. If if the big head honcho is like leaning back and everybody else is sitting, you know, sitting up at attention, don't, don't, don't mirror him. (laughs) It's, Mm -hmm. It's rude. So you have to figure out if everybody's sitting differently, then you actually should mirror the boss. 
Uh, you, but if everybody's sitting in one way and they're sitting differently, do not mirror them. Uh, we just interviewed Susan McPherson for the podcast who has a book about the lost art of connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved the chapter about claiming space collaboratively. I work mm-hmm. in a collaborative, uh, improv is a collaborative art form. Um, and I think it's interesting because the way you're approaching this is, um, uh, well, let me quote you from the book, uh, quote, we must connect as if our very lives depended on it. Um, mm-hmm. And you mean that. Oh, yes. So, so talk about how important this is and what, what you're really saying in this chapter. Well, I, you hear a lot of stories about networking, and I think there's this very superficial idea about networking, which is I'm going to get to know this person because I want to know what they, I can get from them. Right. And I'm going to pretend to be their friend so that I can get something one day. And I personally don't think that works nope. because I think people have really good radars and it just never works. And I think what you really want to think of as networking is, do I like this person? And if I do, and we have interest and we could collaborate, then that's great, forge a connection, but make sure it's based in authenticity. But the other piece for me for that is I have been saved by connection my whole life. And my big sister, I had a, Roberta Wallet, I had a teacher who took me home as if I were her own child every day after school. My dad was a single father and all of the mentors in my life. And then when the pandemic hit, I lost a year's worth of work almost in yeah. a week. Yeah. And I'm a speaker, you know, and everything shut down. And I was doing a lot in academia. Most of my work was in academia and academia just went boom, no mm-hmm. outside contractors. And I was at zero income and I thought, I'm going to lose my house. Mm-hmm. I'm going to lose everything. And I contacted my network. I mean, it just, it's, I still get verklempt talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I contacted my network and this call came in and this call and the next thing my friend at Microsoft said, I want to introduce you to this person. I did a gig there. I did a gig there. It was my network that saved me. And um, I, I think that there are just in my life, there have been a million examples. The funniest one is after my head injury, we had food delivered every day to our house for three months. And my ex-husband, who is still a dear friend of mine, turned to me one night and said, I am so glad you're not a jerk that everybody hates because we would be so screwed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because he would have to do the cooking. I, yeah, we'd be screwed in my household too. Yeah, right, exactly. You also say in this chapter, "quote Me too" must not be the destination; it must be the beginning, and that's yes. another aspect of this collaboration, which is you you hold all of us up, uh, you hold each other up in in the effort to hold all of us up. That's right. Well, one of the things I, I rail against is white feminism, and I think that white feminism has a history of white supremacy. And we have hurt our sisters, our brown and black sisters. And it has been all about white women breaking the glass ceiling, which let me tell you, some of my friends who are women of color are like, that is the last thing they're worried about. And so until we actually create an intersectional movement that is truly intersectional, uh, it's nothing will change. And when I started writing this book, I had a lot of people say to me, because a fifth of the book is about whiteness and about making sure that we end about intersectionality and supporting each other. And I had a lot of people say to me, why are you writing about black people in, a, in, in race in a book about women? And I would say, well, here's the thing. You know, there are actually black women that exist in the world. <laughs> and I would not be writing a book about women if I just didn't talk about race because 
very many of us have more than one issue we deal with. And I know I do, and women of color do as well. And, and so for me, that's a huge part. And there's no way we're going to rise the way we need to if we don't work intersectionally to change things. Yeah, Kim Scott's new book, Just Work, does the same thing. I mean, it's, it's just that recognition of, of the spaces that, that we fill and rec- rec- uh, recognition of the privilege that we've gained uh, yes. inside those spaces. And, and, and then, you know, and, and as a white, straight man, you know, the, the, the learning, learning how to be called in uh, and, and framing it as that as, as opposed to being called out is, is hard. Um, mm-hmm. There should be workshops for it. There aren't many. Um, but it is necessary uh, if, if we are going to, if we're going to raise all of humanity up and, and that, that has to be the goal. Has to be the goal. And I, as I say in the book, you know, when we rise together, we rise higher. And that's just, it's such a simple concept, but it's so true. Uh, before we started the podcast, you know, I, I always look up how to pronounce someone's name um, and was like, is this uh, Eliza? Uh, and you write in the, uh, in, in one section of the book, uh, you talk about the idea of owning your name. Yes. Um, and I think that that's actually uh, more important than people might guess. Yes. Look, when I was little, everybody would call me Eliza and I never fixed it. I never said, no, it's Eliza. Cause that's what my mom called me. I think that your name is your power. That's why when people don't respect you, they don't call you by your name. They call you something else or they will shorten it or they will not really care about how they say it. And when you meet somebody, that first moment when you meet somebody and you announce who you are, you are really saying, you know, this is my personhood. And so I've always told people when I work with them, when I do my talks, the first moment you meet someone, even if you're introduced in a talk, Walk out and say your name again. My name's Eliza Van Court. And again, thank you so much for having me. You know, every time, and I think that it shows that you are okay with yourself and that you expect to be treated as if you have worth. And, and again, we were talking before the podcast by our mutual friend, Dolly Chug, um, who writes in The Person You Mean to Be about that, of, of mm-hmm. recognizing the, the marginalization of people by getting their name wrong. Um, yes. And look, we, we, we need to have spaces where we make mistakes, but we also need to have spaces where we do the work. And yes. it is not that hard to Google uh, the first, I Googled you, I went to the video, first one was your name. I have gone to other guests where that has not been the case. So when we sign on, I go, I need to get your name right. And I could not find it on, online. That's okay too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things that happened in this book, and I'm not going to say who did this, but one of my mentees, Prachi, is in one of the um, one of the cartoons on mansplaining. I had all my friends and my mentees in them. And they said, do you need to use that name? Because it looks like you just went and found weird names. And Prachi has struggled with people t- calling her the wrong name. She's Indian her whole life. And I said, there is no way I'm changing her name. And they wanted to change it to like Priscilla or something. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not. And that's what I, you know, we're taking these, you know, you take someone's name from them and and you steal something, I think, very, very powerful. Uh, Let's talk about another label. Um, You talk about three words that have been used throughout history to keep women quietly in line. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are those words? Crazy feminist bitch. (laughs) Let's go through them. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, crazy is, you know, anytime you have a feeling. So if you're going to say you have a feeling, you're crazy. You have to be totally even all the time. And there is a history of women who have said their feelings at being punished. Yep. Uh, cra- you know, bitch is I'm angry. 
You're not allowed to be angry as a woman. And if you are, you're a bitch. You can't even have an opinion a lot of the time. So if you say your opinion, you're a bitch. If you have a feeling, you're crazy. And then if you advocate for yourself, you're a feminist. Now I am a feminist, but it's a, it's a negative. It's all that like feminazi kind of ridiculousness. And what that all, and there's all kinds of history behind those words to demonize those words, to make the women who have those words as a scarlet letter on them. And so, you know, in the book, I say like, let's own these words. That's why I love Lizzo. I love yes. her. I'm a hundred percent that bitch. I'm like, yes. Um, and so we actually have a, we're doing a little pre-launch book club and we call it the CFB book club for the crazy feminist bitch book club. So yeah, don't let words silence you. And so much of the time that happens and man, you got to own those, you know, whatever you need to do, either shut it down or own them, but never let a word silence you. When someone says I'm a bitch, I'm like, Clearly, you think I have an opinion, so thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you and you and you you're in a safe space to do that, and that and that's exactly right. I had a, a long conversation with our executive producer John Carr uh, about the N word, um, mm-hmm. and you know the the different sort of fractured relationship is uh, in in the African American community, even just just alone. That that you know, not a monolith. A lot of people have won't use that word. A lot of people use it all the time, and it's. You know, it's important to understand how these words have been used, when they've been used to silence uh, or or disenfranchise. You talk a lot about that, about when when you disconnect us, that 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 becomes the problem. And and yeah. those words can do that. I I yeah, and I also think that like with the N word, I I don't. Need, it's just not my word. Nope, not no, my word. It's, it's not my business. It's not my word. And if you want to say it, and you're a person of color. That's not my business. And if you don't want to say it, it's not my business, but that word will never come out of my mouth. Not ever. And, you know, I think that's, that's, that's all we need to worry about as white people is it's not our word and the community can work on that. And I think it's similar to, you know, if I walk up to one of my girlfriends, like one of my girlfriends called me today and she was like, bitch, what's up on the phone? I was like, Hey girl, we're talking on the phone. We have a great time. We're, you know, having a back and forth. Um, and you know, it's okay. If you said, Hey, Liza, Hey bitch, it's great having you on the show. I'd be like, I'm sorry. What? Like, you can't call me that. That's that not would be your a bad word. opener on my part. That's a bad opener. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if my girlfriend, then again, I would never use the N word with this woman who called today because she was an African-American woman. Yeah. Right. So there are words she can say to her friends and the, you know, we've actually all been in groups where they say it to each other and I'm just shut up. It's not my word. Yep. yep. All right. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. But before we do that, there was one more thing I wanted to talk to you about, and that's boundaries. Um, and this is, I'm curious about talking to you about this. Uh, let's start in a theater context, because mm-hmm. we're going to reenter these spaces. Mm-hmm. And the boundaries have changed. In the last mm-hmm. year, the boundaries have changed. Oh, and yes. You work with a lot of young people. We work with a lot of young people. They yes. especially are very conflated about these boundaries and in and, and, and the same way that gender has become uh, just very fluid in that in that area. Um, you say in the book, boundaries are hard to establish, but they are life changing. True mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. difficult to navigate, man. Yes. Uh, For me, the best thing that I've learned, because I work with a lot of young people of color, um, is to make sure that I'm not the one putting up the boundary. And that was a big thing for me to learn. And my favorite example of this is I was directing someone in a show, and I said to this young Latinx man, okay, so I want you to cross her on this one moment. And he said, 
uh, and, he, and then we did the scene and he didn't. And I, I'll, I'll use a different name. I'll call him John because I don't want to out him. But I said, so, you know, I said, I just told you to cross. And he said, he kind of didn't say anything. And if this had been five years ago, I would have been like, if I tell you to cross, you cross, you know. Yeah. And, and I said, so what's going on? And he said, that's a white woman. In this moment, I wouldn't cross. She's dangerous for me. I don't know her well enough yet. I would step back. And I went, oh. Okay, well, that was a moment of white direction. So I was like, okay, why don't you do that? And the amazing thing was afterwards, my friend came, who is an expert on race. I actually quote her in the book, Dr. Nia Nunn. And she said, I loved that moment when you had him step back. That was so accurate. And I said, Nia, (laughs) that was not me. My direction was just the opposite. And she said, oh, that's fine. It doesn't matter. What matters is you listen to him and let him tell you what he needed to make it real for him. And I think yeah. that's how those boundaries need to be done because we don't know, and I don't know most of the time. And I know that my biggest mistakes have when, been when I try to put up those boundaries from a place of whiteness and ignorance. Right. Yeah. I think for the way I think about uh, of this is not centering myself in the story uh, or even, even the whiteness of this institution that I belong to, because it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, and then also, but also letting people know this is the context of the job. You're, you, we're, cr- we're creating shows here in conversation with the audience. Um, if that is something that is going to make you uncomfortable because it, it potentially could and, and stop you from doing this, this ain't the right gig for you, you know, nice. but there, there are other gigs for in, in our world, in our field, and even in this building that you could do, but this, right. this, this vulnerability and risk that you have to apply with these audiences that frankly, you won't understand the intent Unless, unless it's bald faced and we can step in, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of gray area in our field. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I think comedy right now is particularly tricky um, yeah. because things have changed. And, you know, there are things that you could say before, which you can't, which is good, but it's just making us all have to stretch our muscles a little bit. It's funny. What you're saying is absolutely true, but also has not stopped the comedy community from being prolific. There is more yes. comedy out there right now than ever and you've got like the amber ruffin show and you know she's second city and other people are doing tremendous work so yeah absolutely it's, it's a big hannah gatsby too hannah gatsby went in there oh. and just said let's just turn this whole genre upside down shall we <laughs> and it was just like i bow very down to powerful you. art that was yes. that was that that, that the, both those shows were absolutely okay. Uh, so we always end the podcast by asking our guests for a yes and story. Uh, so in the parlance of improvisation, um, you can't create something by yourself or by saying no. You have to affirm and contribute, and that's in order to explore and heighten. Do you have a yes and story for us? I do. Uh, when I first came back to Ithaca to start my acting school, everybody said, there's no way you're going to do a two-year Meisner Technique program in Ithaca, New York, where there's no market for actors. And I said, yes. I am. And it's going to stick around for a very, very long time. And everyone said I was absolutely bananas. Mm-hmm. And now people travel an hour and a half, actually three hours round trip twice a week before the pandemic to take classes with us. And we've been here for now about 20 years. And I, you know, for me, I was like, no, that's not, I'm not going to say, okay, I'm going to say, yes, I am. And it's going to be better than you think. And it ended up being better than we thought. So it sounds like you yes ended yourself. Yes, I did. <laughs> That's sort of what I've done I've, in my life, I think, a lot of the time. <laughs> That's, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It starts yes. there. Yes, absolutely. I think that sometimes, particularly when you're used to getting a lot of no, you have to live your life yes-ending yourself in a way that might be a little um, untraditional. 
Uh, the book is called A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space. Stand tall, raise your voice, be heard. Uh, Eliza Van Court, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, truly. Getting the SAN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumbledare, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive